First Thessalonians. Sorry, technology. I don't know how to make this. Somehow there's a problem with the Wi-Fi password that they changed and they gave me, and so I have no access except for cellular. Anyway. Um, First Thessalonians chapter two is where we're at this morning and where we're where we're endeavoring to be. And as we get into this chapter, well, I just by way of remembrance uh, and context, we remember that Paul is coming to Thessalonica, that has he is there ministering. Uh, he's been led to that region, to Macedonia, by the Holy Spirit specifically. Um, Thessalonica is one of is the, about the, is the second town that he came to in his uh, movement through that region. But as he gets into this second chapter, he starts this chapter by reminding the Thessalonian church of what it was like when he and Silas and Timothy came and started their ministry there, when they first preached the gospel in Thessalonica. And he puts them in remembrance of a couple of things. First, he reminds them that it was effective, that what they were preaching not only changed their lives, but it, that it was, in fact, effective preaching. The Word of God did what it was supposed to do. Second, he reminds them of his conduct. While he was there, Paul didn't seek to win a popularity contest. He was there to serve the Lord first and foremost. And he also reminds them that, that he was not a burden. And those are the three things that we're going to talk about in some uh, some detail this morning. He was not a bird. He was. He didn't put a heavy-handed, uh, even though he had apostolic authority, even though he could have made demands or or things like that. He didn't do any of those things. And we find that his interaction and conduct with this church was very humble and very compassionate. He sought not to be a burden. And so, from those those reminders that Paul is giving this church, knowing that this is very applicable to us today. We want to make some, what I feel like are important applications. So let's begin here. Let's read the first two verses. Paul says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that you had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. I want to go back and Paul mentioned, Philippi here, and I want to give some context for that understanding, uh, because as I said, Thessalonica is the second place that he came in Macedonia, Philippi being the, really the first, Lydia being one of the very first converts in Europe. And so let's turn to Acts chapter 16, if you will, Acts chapter 16, and we're going to read verses 16 to 31, because this these are the events that Paul is referencing in Philippi, um, beginning in uh, in verse 16 of Acts chapter 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And as they did this, and as and this she did many days. But Paul being grieved turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out the same hour. So just uh, imagine the scene. Here's this woman. She's possessed by uh, a demon. And as a result of this, she's being used. Uh, the ability that she has through this demonic influence is being used uh, to make people money. I mean, she's effectively a slave to not only this demon, but the people who are taking advantage of her. 
And so through fortune telling, through soothsaying, uh, by demonic influence, she's able to make them a lot of money. Is my business going to succeed? Is, and so those are the things that are happening here. She encounters Paul in Philippi and begins to speak truth, right? Here it is. This is the one who tells us about the most high God that shows us and tells us about the way of salvation. That's what's being discussed. That's what's happening. And it says that Paul was grieved. And that term means that he was troubled and he was offended, right? That, that here it is. Um, and as a result of that, taking up offense on behalf of this young woman who's being taken advantage of, he casts this demon out. And when her masters, in verse 19, saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers. And they brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. And so they're put into the innermost jail, right? The, these men who, who see, I mean, follow the money. That's their motive here. Our means of gains, our livelihood is lost by the deliverance of this young woman. We can no longer take advantage of her. She's no longer, no longer under the influence and control of this demonic force. And so therefore, we have lost our means of making money. And being offended and mad about what has happened, rather than seeing the deliverance of this young woman, they drag Paul and Silas into the, the city center uh, where the elders are gathered, the magistrates, and they begin to make accusations. Now, ultimately, the accusations are false, but that's where they stand. And as a result of that, they are beaten and they're put into prison. Paul and Silas are beaten and put into prison. And we'll remember that as, as we read this in verse 25, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Which is interesting because here are Paul and Silas, who've been led directly by the Holy Spirit into Macedonia. And the first, the chief city that we come to, being Philippi, the first place that we come, we're almost immediately beaten and thrown into prison. And what do they do? They praise the Lord. They give thanks. Their circumstances being dire didn't change their understanding of what God had done and is doing in and through them. And suddenly it says in verse 26, there was a great earthquake. And so the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. So here they are in the middle of the night praising the Lord. This earthquake comes, obviously sent by God, delivers them, opens all the doors. Everybody's bands are loose. They're free. The prisoners are free. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself. Supposing that the prisoners had fled. I mean, your job was to keep these two men without... Without any question, this is your only task. Yet here it is, you're awakened by this earthquake and you see that the doors are open and the first assumption is they're gone. And he says, I'm as good as dead. I may as well take my own life. It'll be much easier on me than what they're going to do to me for having lost these two guys that I was supposed to keep. And just as he's about to do that, Paul cries out, says, do thyself no harm, we're here. 
which is interesting to me. Here's Paul and Silas, obviously delivered by the Lord, yet they didn't leave. They remained, as we read, as we would read uh, in Paul's other writings in Romans 13, for example, submitted to the authorities that they found themselves under. They've been falsely accused. There was probably expectation of being able to make defense and those kinds of things, but here they were. They submitted themselves to that authority. They didn't leave when they could. And ultimately, the fact that they didn't leave, the fact that they would walk in obedience to God, who has established all power and authority. So therefore, as they subject themselves to it, they subject themselves to the Lord first and foremost. And we studied through that in pretty good detail when we went through Romans. As a result of that, we find this Philippian jailer, and not only him, but his entire family coming to faith, coming to trust Jesus Christ. The witness of their life was consistent. So this is what's going on. Paul is talking about being beaten, being imprisoned, all of those things. As a result of this, the next day, they're brought out before the magistrates. Here they are going get to make their defense, and Paul tells them that he's a Roman citizen. What they've done by Roman law is illegal. They're in trouble. And they basically ask Paul, we'll let you go if you'll leave. So immediately Paul leaves. And where does he go? He goes to Thessalonica. So can you imagine that here is Paul, still bearing the wounds and the bruises and all those things from being whipped, showing up in the synagogue, because that's where he goes, as we read in uh, verse uh, seven, chapter 17. He goes to Thessalonica, where was, there was a synagogue of the Jews, and that's where he preached. He shows up at your synagogue, all beaten, bruised. What credibility would he have? Unknown as he was in that region? <laughs> well, you know, are you just going to let this guy saunter up to the front and start teaching everybody? Yet that's exactly what happened. We don't know what he had to go through, what he had to endure as a result of his appearance and all those things that had just happened to be able to preach the gospel. But it doesn't matter because he did whatever he had to do to be able to fulfill what God had called him to. He had a calling from the Lord and he did whatever he needed to do. God has clearly brought us here. And so, therefore, as a result of that, we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to make sure that we're doing it with all that we have in us. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, because we look at this example, we see Paul's example. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we're brought to remember not only Paul's example, but the example of, of many others who have gone before, who through faith in Christ, it's referenced to Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith being witnesses of God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his ability and desire to deliver and to keep us as his people, were exhorted in the first couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12, 2 and 3, says, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, the initiator and the one who will bring to full completion of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right. So here's Jesus. Consider that he is the author and the finisher. He is the initiator. He is the object of our faith. He is the one that, that, that 
brings everything to pass. And not only that, he is faithful and will finish it to the end, that he will make us like himself, as we read in Romans chapter 8. That in, that in the end, we will be like him. As we read in John's uh, epistles, when we see him, we'll be like him. He's not going to leave anything unfinished. We have this trust in Christ. But notice what it says here, that Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him, for what he would have been promised by God the Father to, to be the mechanism of deliverance, to be the one that would set you and I free, even though that meant that he was going to have to become sin so that we could become righteousness. He was going to face the wrath of God for our sinfulness. It was a joy for him. It was something that he was going to do, that he pleasure took pleasure in. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He stayed with it. He, put, he, he could have, uh, as he told Peter when they came to take him to, to uh, trial before his, leading up to his crucifixion, and he cuts off Malchus's ear. And Peter, Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. And Jesus says, hey, we could have called down legions of angels. This is not a problem, Peter, but this is the will of God, and so therefore we're going to submit ourselves to it. This is what's got, got to happen. He could have done something different, but he chose not to. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it says for you and I, here in Hebrews 12, verse 3, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Just like Paul, who looks to Jesus Christ, and the, the least that I can render unto him is the giving of myself as a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We look unto Jesus Christ, who endured hardship. The Bible tells us that, that it is enough for us to be as our master. That we will be like him. And, and all that is talking about in Jesus' discussion there uh, is that we're going to suffer persecution. We're going to suffer hardship as a result of our service to him. Can you imagine how discouraged Paul might have been in this situation? Here we are directed by God specifically. Why did you call us here? Did you call us here to put us in prison? Did you call us here, Lord, that we might be whipped and beaten, that we might be persecuted, that we might be made fun of, whatever it may be for you and I? We're not facing jail time probably as a result of our faith, as a result of our desire to honor the Lord. However, we do face discouragement. We do face times and points in our life where we want to give up because it's hard. Because it feels that there is something that I have to give up as a result or that I can't do or that that there's a separation and a distinction. Yet here we see Jesus Christ who is willing to do everything on our behalf, facing all of the same things in every way tempted as we are yet without sin, we would read here is Paul, an example. Here is Hebrews chapter 11, full of examples throughout the Old and the New Testament of those who would endure and suffer persecution, hardship, would go through things so that they might be servants of the Lord. And as we, what we have to realize is that we may not face exactly the same troubles, but the same thing is true for us as it was for them. Grace was sufficient that they might endure what they faced. And the same is true for you and I, that God's grace is sufficient for what we may experience in this life. 
Therefore, we can move forward. We can take all of this that is before us, the providence of God to have established us where we are at, and we can move forward with the confidence that no matter what comes our way, the grace that is extended to us for his glory, for his honor, so that people might come to faith in Jesus Christ. No matter if I am persecuted or mocked or scorned, whether I lose my job, whether I offend people, none of that matters. His grace is sufficient. And as a result of that, we are fit for the task. Paul could have given up. Boy, it was a big mistake. I just had some bad pizza the night before, and I'm, I had this weird vision, and we came into Macedonia. Obviously, God has closed the door here. We're in prison, Silas. Tomorrow morning, when we get out of this jam, we're going back going back to Asia Minor where we're having good success. That's not what Paul did. He walked in faith. He trusted that this is where the Lord has directed us. We're going to move forward. Philippi is important in our understanding of what Paul encountered there, yet his continuance in the ministry that God had called him to is important for us to understand. It is inapplicable to you and I. He talks about in that first verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he talks about, you know our entrance unto you, that it was not in vain. Now, this is how we came in. It was not in vain. It was effective. That it did what it was supposed to do. It was proven. And how do we know it was proven? Well, Paul spent that first chapter in 1 Thessalonians describing the faith and the success of this church. So much so that they're now sending out their own missionaries. And Paul says, listen, you've lightened the burden upon us as missionaries because you're going to places before we even get there. Right? They had a desire, and whether, and even though they faced persecution, just like Paul did, they continued in the things that called, God has called them to. And those are the same things that we have been called to, to be his ambassadors, to be those who would share the gospel. Providence established wherever we are at in those paths that God has before ordained that we would walk in them. So it's effective. He came in and as they're preaching the gospel, people are being saved. People are being set free. The truth will set you free, Jesus said. And so here's Paul, not changing the message, continuing on in all those things that he's been called to. And primarily, what is he teaching? He's teaching the word of God. In Isaiah chapter 55, turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 55. We're going to begin in verse 8. Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I just pause there for a moment, because, as I said, Paul could have been discouraged. We might be discouraged as we encounter hardship. There is a problem with this open door, closed door Christianity mentality. And all that is to say is that we view this hardship as the doors closing. And it isn't necessarily that way. Paul could have easily said we're in prison. This is obviously a closed door. We're not continuing on through Macedonia. The door was not closed. The door was wide open. As they walked faithfully to what God's word says, people came to faith. 
God's ways are not our ways. When we look at it and we perceive what is going on around us, we might misinterpret that. We have to take, as we read in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, whatever that reference is there, we have to take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. Think about it the way God thinks about it. Think about it in light of who he is, what he's called us to, the purposes and the will of God for all of mankind. He continues on in Isaiah 55, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So we have this illustration. The rain comes down, the snow melts, all of those things happen. It waters the crops that have been planted. And as a result of the nourishment received there, it bears fruit. So shall my word be. That is the illustration that God has of his word that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. It's going to accomplish what God has designed it to do. It's going to go out. It is, in fact, going to set the captive free. It is, in fact, going to lead them to an understanding of their need for Christ. And it is, in fact, going to be the very word of God that brings them to faith in Christ. Their understanding of what he has done. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, in this discussion about the word of God, we read, The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And at the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That here is the word of God, and as we encounter it, as we are faced with the very truth of God's word, that it cuts through everything, even those things, soul and spirit, that which is unrecognizable from our perspective. I just uh, to illustrate that point, right? There's been a division amongst the church since the founding of the church. If you go and read the early church fathers as far back as we can go, there's this discussion. Are the soul and the spirit the same thing? From our perspective, they're undiscernible. And I'll just tell you that I don't think that it's something to divide over. It's an interesting topic to discuss. Don't separate fellowship because they think the soul and spirit are the same thing or they aren't the same thing. But what I'm saying all that that reference means is that they are the same from our perspective. We can't discern between the two. Yet here is the word of God that with surgical precision and accuracy can cut between those two things that we can't distinguish. The thoughts and the intents of the heart, even our motives and reasons for whatever we're doing. So here I am as a quote unquote good person doing quote unquote good things. Yet I encounter the word of God. And what does it do? It cuts through all of my self-deception to reveal to me where my heart really is. It isn't the cleverly devised arguments. It isn't the flattery. It isn't all of these mechanisms of how we share the gospel. It is, in fact, the very word of God that cuts through the garbage. It's not vain. It's effective. Here is Paul, and he says, are entering into you because the, what we're bringing you is the very word of God, is the truth of the gospel. 
It was effective. People were being saved as a result of what is happening, as a result of the preaching of truth. Now, we shouldn't be ashamed. We should be bold. He says that uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, but even after that we had suffered before and came unto you shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. There's the full possibility that Paul and Silas and Timothy may receive the same treatment that they received in Philippi. That they may very well be persecuted, imprisoned, beaten. That they may suffer the same scorn and ridicule or mockery, which is probably more like what we're going to face. That all of those things may be encountered once again. But he says it didn't matter. We came boldly preaching the truth. In, in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to every man, woman, and child that has ever lived. It is the power of God unto salvation. We are not to be ashamed of it, but we make our boast in what Christ has finished. You remember in Acts chapter 4, as Peter and John, shortly after uh, Jesus' ascension and the receipt of the Holy Spirit, Peter and John are going into the temple, and they go by way of the beautiful gate, and there's a man there who's begging for alms, and Peter walks over to him and says, Hey, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And he takes him by the hand, and he stands him up, and it says immediately his feet and ankle bones, everything that was afflicted is healed. And I want you to understand that it's completely healed. This man was born this way as we go through and we study through the book of Acts. That's what you find. He was born with that infirmity. Yet immediately he has strength and he has ability to walk. He's never walked before. But not only is he walking, he's walking and leaping, it says, and praising God. What a witness of the power of God's transformative word as it goes into and encounters people and, and affects their lives. But notice the boldness that Peter and John continue in as we get into Acts chapter 4. Begin with me in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. I mean, they're, they're, they're fishermen. They're not scholars. They're regular, everyday people. But they're bold. They speak with authority because we have the very word of God. We are authoritative in that. They perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant. They marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Because they weren't spouting their own opinions. They were spouting the truth of God's word. And beholding the man which was healed standing with him, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred amongst themselves. Right? So here, Peter and John, they're on trial effectively for having done this miracle. And verse 16, everybody that's there judging them says, hey, what are we going to do with these men for indeed a notable miracle has happened? We can't deny what has happened. We can't deny that this man who couldn't walk now walks and leaps. And it's manifest. It's known. It's understood to all in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. 
but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. In other words, we can't have the preaching of the gospel going on around here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to threaten them. We're going to tell them that if you preach the gospel, bad things will happen. And they called him and they commanded him not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus, but Peter in verse 19. And John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge you. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We are compelled by what God has commanded us to do in his son, Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel despite whatever cost there may be faced. They had boldness. They were unwavering in their desire and their ability. And in fact, as they get back to, they count it a joy to be counted worthy to have suffered persecution on the part of the gospel for, for the name of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching there and with all perseverance. And I don't think it's Ephesians 6, 18. No, it's verse 19. Paul is talking about prayer. That is the context. And he's praying for supplication for all saints. And he asks, he says, pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul asks, that the Ephesian church would pray that he would boldly preach the gospel. And I think for you and I, as believers in Christ, who have purposely come together in fellowship with the intent that we want to be disciples and servants of Jesus Christ, we should regularly pray for one another and for our church that we would open our mouths boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That we would, that we would intercede on behalf of one another with that intent. With that in mind, Paul's entrance into Thessalonica was effective. It wasn't empty. It wasn't a waste of time because the message that they brought was truth. And it was brought in an uncompromising and in an authoritative and bold fashion. There was no changing of the message as a result of what they may face. He goes on in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he, and he gives a few other things. He, he says, this is what our message was not. This is how our conduct, these are things that don't characterize it. In other words, let's read verses 3 through 6. Paul says, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we are... As we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men saw we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. So the apostle here makes clear that his method and his motives were sincere. And we're not going to look and examine all of these in great detail, but I do want to go through it. He says that it was not deceitful. Paul's message was true. And it was evidence to be truth by the effect that it had. That here it was coming in and people were being born again. People were being delivered from darkness and brought into light. They were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 
he says it was uh, it was not of uncleanness. In other words, it was not selfish. It wasn't motivated by some impure motive. In the end, we find that Paul didn't receive anything for what he did. He was not driven by what he would get out of it. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have to understand that as we read in Romans chapter 12, our living sacrifice, giving our bodies a living sacrifice, is the least that we can do in our service to God. We're not necessarily reaping benefit of it. There is benefit. Don't get me wrong. When we share the gospel, we boldly proclaim what God has given us, and we fulfill the Great Commission. We are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ with those things that do endure. However, that's not our motive. Our motive is the honor and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our motive is that those people who are lost in darkness would come to faith in Jesus Christ and experience the same salvation that we have partaken of. He says that there was no guile, there was no deceit. I put there's no clickbait, right? We all know what that means in today's world. Some title put on a video or whatever it is, and you click on it and it's completely not what it's about, or it's, you know, completely put on its head or whatever, right? It wasn't clickbait. Paul was authentic in what he was telling people he was going to tell them. This is the gospel of Christ. This is the way that we are reconciled with our creator. There was no guile. He was not sneaking his presentation. He spoke the truth and it was unveiled. He didn't use flattery, he said. He was not there to make them feel better or to pump them up for the week that they might just get through until the next injection of whatever. He confronted them with the reality of their existence. And he did so from God's perspective only. Right? That here you are, Thessalonica, here you are as a people in desperate need of Jesus Christ. He didn't change the message. He didn't use his position here as a disguise for personal gain, right? A cloak of covetousness. Paul wasn't in it for the money. He wasn't in it for the money. Turn with me to 2 Peter uh, chapter 2 for just a moment. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Because there's a comparison made in that particular in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 with, uh, with false teachers as compared to Paul. Here is Paul. He's receiving nothing. In fact, what he gets out of this is hardship and heartache. But people are born again, and that's all that he needs. And he says, but, but here in 2 Peter, as we have some description of these false teachers, Jesus also addressed false teachers and understanding and recognizing them by their fruit in Matthew chapter 7. In 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken. Verse 3, and through covetousness, or in other words, greedy desire, right? they are in it for the money. They're manipulating the people and whatever their, their, their system is so that they are receiving some benefit as, as a result. Shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingers not and their damnation slumbers not? 
right? The commodity these false teachers are trading in is your pocketbook, is you and your willingness to, to accept the lies that they are telling you. So there's going to be a lot of charisma. There's going to be a lot of influence and, and all kinds of things like that. And they're counting on you not to know the truth. They're counting on you not to be able to recognize the deceit that you have now encountered with them so that you are more easily manipulated. Uh, we watched, and having watched it again, right? We watched The Music Man last weekend. And having watched it again, which I grew up watching The Music Man and I enjoyed it as a kid, I did not understand many of the themes that I now understand as an adult watching The Music Man. I was like, this is a horrible show. Anyway, that aside, <laughs> that aside, you have Professor Harold Hill coming in. And it's talked about at the very beginning that he has to get the music teacher because she's the only one that can expose him. Nobody else knows music. Nobody else could recognize. Nobody else is going to call his bluff on anything. So he knows that he's got to get the music. He just cut her off at the front and, and he begins to woo her. And he's effective in that. But all throughout the movie, what you see is that he is making merchandise of these people. He's manipulating them. He's playing upon their fears of, you know, your kids are going to be playing pool and that's trouble. And all, you know, the whole song and dance and the whole the works, right? They're manipulated. And the reason his manipulation works is because he's able to stop the truth from being spoken. And these false teachers are exactly the same way. Paul doesn't come in with any disguise. He's not there for personal gain. It's not a cloak of covetousness. In fact, as we, as we continue on, we're going to find that Paul is working at night effectively and preaching during the day. Or vice versa. Whenever he's preaching, he's working. He's not going to be a burden to anybody. He is actually paying effectively to be there to do the work of God. And it says that he is here uh, neither in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 2, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, right? I'm not here for my own notoriety. My prestige is not to be the motive that we're doing any of this. Listen, if Paul's motives had been anything other than pure, when the hardship trouble, when the hardships came, and they did, there's persecution here in Thessalonica, he would have changed the story, right? If 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 I could alleviate this and I could continue to be here duping all of you, then I'll just change my story. And so some questions that I want to ask is, do we alter the message in anticipation of pushback? Right, that here is Paul. He's unwavering. He's bold in his presentation. He's not willing to change the message because the message is, in fact, truth, knowing that it's going to cause offense, knowing that it's going to be one of those things that people are not always receptive to. I'm not saying be provocative necessarily, but what I am saying is, do we alter the message? Do we somehow soften the interaction that people may have with truth? Because we expect there to be pushback. Are we a respecter of persons? Uh, do we do we interact with these things in those ways? Let, let's look at let's look at this for just a moment. Turn with me to Acts chapter ten. 
Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 35. So here in this chapter, Peter has met Cornelius. He's had his vision up, up on the rooftop where God sends things down and says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Basically revealing to Peter that I'm going to save the Gentiles and now is the time. And Paul, excuse me, Peter begins in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. He opened his mouth and said, Of truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Right? Understand what he's saying here. Then in this context, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, which encapsulates all of humanity. Because you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter. God is going to save. He, he wants to save everyone. God is not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter 3.9. So, so there's this promise, this looking forward to God's not a respecter of persons, doesn't matter what, matter what your background is, where you've come, what you've done, God would desire to see you saved. But in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Right, Those who would come to faith and those who would serve are accepted by him is ultimately what Peter is saying. Now, here's the thing for you and I. When we would alter the message, we are becoming respecters of persons. I see that this may offend you, that, that when you're encountered with the reality that your faith or your lack of faith, I mean, everybody has faith. Whether I have faith that God doesn't exist or I have faith in some other God. Right, When your faith is encountered with truth, Am I going to soften that message? Am I going to be a respecter of persons or am I going to simply share the message that God has given us to share, which is Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. Do I alter the message? Listen, I know that I've been guilty of this. And for me, generally speaking, it's in the context of my family because you want to leave the door open, right? You want to leave the door in a way that when I leave, they're not going to close it behind me, and I don't have an opportunity to share the gospel. But in so doing, we have to, rather than change the method, the message, we need to change our method. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, to those who are weak, I became weak. To those who are strong, I became strong. I became all things to all men that I might win some. But he never changed the message. He changed the method. Whether it was timing, whether it was when he did, whatever it may be, he changed the method, but he didn't change the message. And we have the opportunity to mimic that. Don't change the message. In Galatians chapter five, you remember Paul said, if I preach circumcision, would I still be persecuted? He's telling the Galatians, he's reminding them that I never changed the message. It was always Jesus Christ. Nothing added, nothing taken away. Him and him alone is what brings us to salvation. I wouldn't be suffering persecution, Paul says, if I had changed my message. Yet here he is, still suffering persecution, still having to contend with those who would pervert the gospel. So the question do we ask, do we alter the message? Do we, are we, have we become respecters of persons without realizing it? Have we done things that might misrepresent the gospel of Christ in the way that we soften or change or manipulate that message? 
this we need to realize that the word of God, the very gospel that we are there changing, obscures the picture that the people see in the mirror. When they look into the perfect law of liberty, unchanged, uncorrupted, they clearly see their need for Christ. When they look into some obscured mirror, they don't see the egg on their face. They don't see their natural sinful nature, their absolute need for Jesus Christ. The other thing that we might do, rather than just change the message or soften it or whatever, and I'm trying to put that in a polite way, but effectively we are perverting the gospel when we do that. The other thing that we may do is we might just keep our mouth closed altogether. I'm going to avoid presenting the gospel in the name of quote-unquote peace. Right? What are the two things that you never talk about? Politics and religion. So we talk about politics all the time. Everybody wants to talk about politics. You broke the first rule already. We don't talk about... <laughs> you don't even bring it up. It's not even one of the two things. It's too off the radar. Fight Club is out. <laughs> right? But but we don't talk about the Why? Because in the name of peace, in the name of we're going to have this family gathering, we're going to get together with friends and family. We, we don't want to cause offense. We don't want to... Um, face people we, we don't want to have these intense argumentative sort of discussions and i'm not saying be argumentative in your presentation but what i am saying is that we don't avoid the topic that we should engage in it we don't avoid it in the name of peace turn with me to luke chapter 12 luke chapter 12 verses 51 through 53 Here Jesus is teaching his disciples, and I, and I want you to notice what he is saying here. Because it, it has to do with the presentation of truth and peace. He says in verse 51, Suppose you that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you, nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. And the father shall be divided against the son. And the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. As you read the parallel passages in some of the other Gospels, in fact, it even says that those in the same house will deliver you up to be persecuted. Paul, Jesus himself is saying, listen, I didn't come so that we can have these nice, friendly conversations. He says, listen, I came and I made a line in the sand. And those who get on my side of the line, the two or the three in the household, are going to be at odds with those who are on the other side of the line. There will be a cause of division. Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, him being singular, causes division. None of us want that, especially within our families. Like I said, we want to leave the door open. And I'm saying change the method to, to accomplish that. But we have to realize that there is going to be contention as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have not accepted him. And I wanted to just encourage you with this, uh, that right, the restoration that is possible, the only restoration that is possible in those relationships is in Jesus Christ. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep encountering them with the truth of God's word. Be uncompromising in it. 
do it in compassion and love, do it gently as it were, but don't avoid it and don't change it. We are not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as Paul is instructing that church, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews. That's a stumbling block. And if we think about it, those who are claiming faith in some other God, Jesus Christ being the only way is going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be something that trips them up. They have to contend with it. I can't get over the fact that Christianity is so narrow-minded that it is the only way. All religion is just same different rivers leading to the same ocean and all that, which is contrary to what God has said. All other religions are, in fact, leading to the same ocean. It's just not the ocean that they think that it is. It's going to get them... Broad is the way that leads to destruction. So it's going to be a stumbling block to some. Those who that we encounter who have faith, there's going to be a stumbling block. There are going to be others, he says. And to the Greeks, it is foolishness. That we would be fools for having believed in, in God, for having believed that we are separated from him and, and in need of his restorative power through Jesus Christ. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Right? We have tasted and we've seen what it means and what God has done in and through us. We understand that it is, in fact, just as it is described in Scripture. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. His ways are not our ways, as we read earlier. We have to check ourselves. Am I altering the message? Have I made myself a respecter of persons? Do I void the topic altogether in the name of peace? Let it never be named amongst us. I want you to notice verse 4. Paul says in excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, that as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which tries our hearts. The, the word allowed means that we are deemed worthy. We are made worthy by God to be his ambassadors. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as Jesus ascends, or just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he commissions his, and, and really at the conclusion of almost all the Gospels, you find the same commissioning, the Great Commission, where we are empowered and sent out to be those representatives, the preachers of the Gospel, to the world all around us. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now we know that we receive the Holy Ghost. How do I know that? Because God says when you accept him, you're given the spirit of adoption. It is the earnest. It is the seal of our salvation. Right? We have that. These guys were waiting for it, and we find that being uh, an occurrence that happens at Pentecost in, in the next chapter of the book of Acts. But here it is. You and I received it as salvation. Therefore, we are commissioned. We are those who have received it. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. 
that no matter where we go, we are his representatives. We are deemed worthy and we are called to the task. In Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, as we look at the presentation of the gospel and we see the, the desperate need is, as Jesus would say, the fields are white, they're ready for harvest, but the laborers are few. We find that there is a plan and a purpose for you and I, all believers, to be engaged in that harvest. And in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jew, Gentile, slave, free person, you, me, whoever. Whosoever means whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But he doesn't stop there. He gives some further indication, and this should be for you and I, uh, uh, an understanding of the urgency that we would walk in obedience, that we would mimic Paul in these ways. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, we understand that God has revealed himself throughout all of his creation. The Bible is clear about that. There is no excuse where we could, with any justification or rationality, stand before God on Judgment Day and say, listen, I didn't know. We are all without excuse, and the first two chapters of Romans makes that abundantly clear. God is perfectly just, and if there is somehow somebody that slips through and they never knew, they had no opportunity, God is perfectly just, and we can count on that, right? They're he, he's taking care of that. We have to operate in the understanding that there is an urgent and dire need for every man, woman, and child on earth. And that we have been commissioned, that we are those who know who he is. We have believed, and now we have a mouth to speak. How shall they, verse 15, how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Two things. Number one, we have been called. We have been sent. We've received a commission from Jesus Christ himself to go and to preach the gospel in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the world. Now, I've never been to Judea. I've never been to Samaria. I've never been to the Middle East. I've hardly been outside of the United States. However, it is in, in those locations specifically, they're representative of where we may go. That wherever we go, even to the uttermost parts of the earth, we have the opportunity to bring this message. We are called, we are sent. Not only that, I want you to realize that we are providentially placed. That in other words, God has put you where he needs you to speak, just as he did with Paul. Paul, I need you to go to Macedonia. Here's the Holy Spirit sending you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20, turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20. Really, we could read even more of this, but for sake of discussion, Paul writes to this church, He that is called in the Lord, right, we've been called, we, we are born again, we are saved in the Lord, being a servant or being a, a slave, somebody who is in bondage as a result of whatever, and we're talking indentured servitude, those kinds of things, right? Here you are, you're a slave, and you accept Christ in that position. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. 
Right? So here we are saved, brought to faith in Jesus Christ as uh, husbands and wives, sons or daughters, in whatever job we may have, in whatever position we may have. God may call us and move us to different places, but what we have to understand is that we are a Christian in that location, in that time, in that place. And if God is sovereign and if he has providentially brought you to faith in that place, then that is your mission field. Doesn't, we have no excuse. We don't have to go find a mission field. We're surrounded by it. We are saved in the middle of it. Whatever position we are in, get busy. In Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as unto Christ. Right, here you are, servants, and, and, and when, we're talking, when we read servants, we read slaves. They're indentured slaves. They, I mean, they have a debt that they owe. I, I've got a whatever reason, I'm going to serve you because I can't pay you. And when my debt's paid off, then I get to go free. But here it is. Obey them that are your masters. There's an entire book in the Bible that describes a servant who comes to faith and leaves his master and comes to Paul. And what does Paul do? He sends him back. That's what the book of Philemon is all about. That's exactly what happened. Both of them being believers, but the one, I'm, I'm free in Christ. Yet Paul says, no, you, you need to go back. And it's consistent with what he says throughout Scripture. He goes on. <clears throat> Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Right? Continue in the position that you're in, servants. Do the best that you can do because you're serving Christ. You're not serving your master anymore. Not as, not as men pleasers, not with eye service, but we're actually doing the thing. We're doing a good, doing the good work with good will, doing service as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters, do the same things unto them for bearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. For it doesn't matter if you're a master or your servant, wherever we are, whatever position we're in, we have some responsibility before the Lord to serve him in that position. Serve him in that role, serve him in that job, in that occupation, in that venue that we have been saved in. We have no excuse. And it is a privilege for us to be used of God, to be deemed worthy that we could be his ambassadors. That we would be born again, that he would save us. Our goal and our object should be to please God. Remember in Galatians chapter 1, as Paul is Talking about this false gospel, he says in Galatians 1, verse 9. And as we said before, so I now say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. And Paul's question is, for now, do I now persuade men or do I persuade God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. It is our privilege and our honor to be his servants to be his representatives 
and we have no excuse. There are those that use the excuse, whether they realize they're making an excuse or not, that I don't have, that I'm not in quote unquote ministry. And that is a false understanding of where we are in Christ. We are his ambassadors. We are those that represent him. We are effectively behind enemy lines, taking the truth to those who need it the most. Jesus didn't come to seek and save those who were whole, but he came to seek and save those who were lost. And who did he send to do it? You and me. It is a privilege to be deemed worthy. He says in uh, verses 8 and 7 and 8, as we get uh, near the end this morning, he says, but we were gentle. So there's the description. These are the things that we were not. We weren't deceptive. We weren't covetous. We understand that it is a privilege to be the servant of the living God. And he says, the way we came into you, Thessalonians, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to be imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Paul has a love for the lost. He has a desire, a godly desire, to see them come to faith in him. He calls them to remembrance of their love that he and his two, two cohorts had, Paul, and Silas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that they expressed and showed them And it was in both states, first in their lost state, that they would come in and despite the, their, the persecution that they were almost inevitably going to receive, they shared the truth. They shared the gospel. They were willing. I loved them enough that I would give even of my own life, he says, that I would share the gospel no matter what. And second, in their born again state, this love for the brethren that we've talked about through the book of Galatians. This love for the brethren, that he would take the time to establish them, that he would write these epistles, that he would convey further and better understanding to them. It's illustrated by the care that a nursing mother would give to her child. Right? We came in, even as a nurse cherishes her children. Paul was willing to give everything for these, even himself. In Romans chapter 9, we have some insight into Paul's heart regarding the lost. And it does well to go and look at it because it should be representative of our heart. He says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not in my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul agonizes and would even trade his own salvation if it meant that his brothers in Israel would be saved. He's willing to give himself in exchange for them. In Philippians chapter 2, we find some understanding that this is exactly the heart that Jesus had toward you and I. Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Let not every man... Look not every man on his own things, but every man look on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now don't miss what's being clearly stated here. Jesus Christ was God. 
yet he was willing to divest himself of all of the glory of heaven, take on flesh so that he might serve. And being found in fashion, he made himself of no reputation, verse 7, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That God, who is not willing that any should perish, would do everything on his part so that we might, through simple faith in his finished work, be saved, be born again, be adopted into his family and become in right relationship with him. So Paul's example is that I will give my life, I will exchange even my salvation if there be those who would come to faith. Jesus would say, I will do everything necessary. I'll provide even my life in substitute of your life. I'll become of no reputation. I will leave the very glory of heaven and all that I have created and take on flesh so that I might die on a cross for your sins. Jesus would say to you and I in John chapter 15, John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, this is my, my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so the question that I'm struck with is I study through this and I look, it's like, where is my heart for the lost? Am I willing do I have the same heart as God is? Am I willing to give of myself, my time, my energies, my efforts, everything that God has entrusted me with for the sake of their coming to faith? Because that is God's desire and will. That is the purpose for which he has saved me and that he has saved you. Not only that, but this love for the brethren. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, in this discussion, and this is common throughout uh, John's epistles, 1 John chapter 3, he says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew him, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Right? It doesn't matter where we stand or where we perceive that other person to stand. We are in the body of Christ. We are here together. We are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Equal standing before God, and we have to understand that. There's no room for jealousy or contention as a result of my perceived position versus your perceived position. There is no part of the body of Christ that can say to any other part of the body of Christ, we don't need you. Right? All of those things are covered, and that's what's being talked about here in that reference to Cain and Abel. He was jealous because he perceived that there was some difference between his relationship with God and his brother's relationship with God. And there might have been. In fact, in that instance, there was. But for you and I in the body of Christ, it's probably a perception. A wrong desire. I want to do that thing, but that's not what God has called me to. Whatever it may be. He goes on. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Let's see. Uh, if, the, if the world hate you, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not is his brother abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we, this is how we understand the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
But whoso has this world's goods and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In the same way that we would give everything so that somebody might come to faith in Jesus Christ, we should be of the same perspective that within the body of Christ, the, the sphere of influence that God has called us to fellowship within, that we would give of ourselves and what God has entrusted us with to the benefit of others. That we would serve, that we would put them before ourselves, that our their needs would override our own needs and desires. We talked about this in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, no, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. If a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Right? That we have this love, that we wouldn't leave them where they're at, but we would do, as we see in verse 2, we would bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That coming alongside, whether it's in physical need or whether it's in uh, transgression, that we would bear that burden with them, that we would come alongside and help to deliver them. So as we are now praying for each other regularly, hopefully, right, that we would have opportunity, that we would be bold in our presentation of the gospel, pray that we would also have a heart for God's people. And what I mean by God's people is those who are yet to come to faith and those who are come to faith. That we would have a heart for them, like his heart. Pray that for me. As we close this morning, I want to look at a couple of things because we are told that we are being molded into the image of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, it says that the predestined, the predetermined plan of God is that you and I would be sanctified, that we would be molded into his image. And here is Paul, who is a good representation of the image of Christ in his desire for the lost, in his willingness to give everything for the lost. And we see that image being one that clearly reflects the heart of God toward people. Romans 5.8 would tell us that while we were yet sinners, that, that the love of God is manifest, that it is shown to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He would give everything and do everything necessary for you and I. In second, excuse me, Second Corinthians five twenty one, we have this this discussion about the atonement, this exchange that happened. That Jesus Christ was made sin; he was there on the cross in the picture of your sin and my sin, hanging there, receiving the wrath and the punishment of God for that sin, so that you, by faith in Jesus Christ, could be called righteous. He gave everything for you and I. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, we find the same thing, similar thought, that this is the heart of Christ. This is the ministry that he gave to you and I, and he would lay down his life. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If we say that we're Christians and we don't have a heart like this, we need to examine ourselves and see whether we be in the faith.
I'm not saying that you aren't. I'm not saying that you are. I'm just saying that this should be representative of where we stand in our, in our desire to see people come to faith. And it might be that we need to take those thoughts captive to the mind of Christ. We may need to repent of those things because I was willing to change the message. I was willing to not speak up and share the gospel because I didn't want to cause offense. Whatever it may be, this may be an opportunity and a calling for you and I to repentance. I know for me, as I study through this week, that's exactly what this was. A call to repentance. That I don't represent Christ in every opportunity that he puts before me. That I don't have the same desire and, and willingness to give of myself as Christ did or as Paul did so that people may come to faith. So that the, the body of Christ may be ministered to. There are areas that we will, that, that, that is easy for us to give of those things. And there are other areas that are harder. Jesus made no distinction between those in his, in his example. Paul made no distinction of those things in his example. Neither do we make any distinction in the example that we might show to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. And as we encounter the word of God, as we see the example of Paul and of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that we would have your grace, because only by your grace can we come to any, any position where we might represent you well and honestly and sincerely. Lord, I know that there's, at least for me, opportunity to improve, to seek uh, your Spirit's guidance and further grace that I might represent you more clearly, more consistently. Lord, and I pray for everyone here that we might have utterance, that we might have opportunity to preach the gospel. And then when we do, Lord, that we would be bold in our presentation. Full of love, full of compassion for those that we are sharing with. But Lord, uncompromising in the message. Uncompromising in the fact that we did share the message. We praise you and thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, who is the message who is your word taken upon flesh, that we might behold his glory, that we might be born again, that we might be saved. And as we have opportunity now to, Lord, praise you and sing and, and give adoration for all that you've said and all that you've done, Lord. Receive it as the offering of our hearts and lips. In Jesus' name, amen.